You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Okay, I quickly want to share some of my inspirations for starting and continuing this podcast. I started my ICU career in an ICU that keeps almost all patients of ventilators awake and walking. As a travel nurse, I quickly realized that that ICU is probably the only one in the world to make that normal. What is normal and almost every other ICU in the world is to have each patient on a ventilator, deeply sedated and left in bed for days to weeks. When I came back to the awake and walking ICU, I had a totally new perspective and appreciation. As a fairly new nurse practitioner, I sat in on a meeting that involved the head of critical care of a large multi-hospital corporation, as well as rehabilitation services. The objective of the meeting was to discuss how to better track patient outcomes in order to know what happens to our ICU patients after they leave the ICU. I shared pictures and videos of patients walking on the ventilator and shared some data collection that showed that almost 98% of survivors from the awake and walking ICU discharged directly home from the hospital compared to only 46% at another hospital with the same Apache scores or level of sickness within the same corporation. The intention to collaborate and improve patient care was misunderstood and a leading physician slammed his hands on the table and yelled at me, well, you don't have TBIs and proceeded to be obstinate and defensive the whole rest of the meeting. As a side note, at the conclusion of this failed meeting, one of the rehabilitation doctors left a final thought as a critical care rehabilitation and traumatic brain injury expert and said, this will be controversial, but I insist that TBI patients are some of the most important brains to protect from sedation and to mobilize. Even if they don't have any limbs, they should be up on a ventilator. Surely this physician thought that this would leave me cowering and hesitant to speak out again. But this was a powerful moment in finding my voice and speaking out. I thought he was one of my main reasons for starting the podcast. Yesterday, I received an email from a medical director of a large corporation in California. He heard my interview on the AARAC podcast, and that was his first exposure to the very idea that patients are not sleeping under sedation and that we leave them with life-altering disabilities. He was not defensive. He was moved. He emailed me to seek consultation services. When I spoke to him on the phone, he said, you made me feel so bad, incredibly bad. It's working. For 45 years, I thought I was doing the right thing. This is the change we need to make. This is the legacy I want to leave before I retire. I want to prevent more harm. Ultimately, he and dozens of the other clinicians that have reached out wanting to change are the reason I do this podcast. Perhaps I started out wanting to stick it to the naysayers, but now my drive is centered in the good, humble, motivated, and eager clinicians that are excited to prevent harm and suffering. This has inspired me to turn these casual consultations into a real service. My new website is www.criticalcareconsultant.com.
www.sinapse.net. It will offer signups for online webinars, in-person presentations, and even bedside support. Every team has different needs, but I would love to be there to help your team wherever you are at in your journey. You can send me in as a hitman to present these concepts to your team and even have help remotely or locally at rounds. We can find a way to help your team make the transition and be able to see your own patients walk out of the ICU doors. Yet no matter what I do, survivors are the ones that will inspire the change. We can talk research and data for days, but ultimately we find our why in the survivors. So I present to you this episode, Jeff and Sonny Sweat, COVID-19 survivors. Jeff, Sonny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tell us about your adventure and your journey with COVID-19. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were, first of all, really careful throughout all of this. We took quarantine very seriously. And, and in fact, California was in at the end of a really large surge in COVID cases. And specifically, they had asked everybody to fully quarantine, like not even hang out with anyone outside of your home, even if even small numbers or cancel Thanksgiving, cancel Christmas. There are people out in tents, not able to go into ICUs, just stay. So we did, we canceled Thanksgiving. We canceled Christmas, like with didn't see any family all year. Well, I, we didn't see any of my family all year. Yeah. And, and I, my, my brother who I had been mountain biking with every week, we didn't see each other for two months during that period. And then towards the very end of this, my son and I went into a record store because he loves vinyl, even though he's only 16. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we got it. We didn't see mm -hmm. anyone else yeah. and we were both wearing masks. Everyone else was wearing masks, but just something happened. The yeah. only other two places we went to a grocery store once and a drugstore once to pick up a prescription. Right. So there's only three places we went to that month, but he was wow. the one who got sick. So that's why we think it was the record yeah. store. Yeah. And he got sick first. He got sick first. And then I started getting sick. And it felt like the al allergies, the Santa Ana winds were blowing here in California, which are always a horrible time for if you have allergies. Yeah. So yeah, we, we were both like coughing and sneezing and, oh, it's just the Santa Ana's because that's how January is. Right. And our kid was like, eh, kind of sick for a day or two. But the main thing was he said everything tasted like cigarettes. And I was like, dude, how do you even know what that tastes like, first of all? But second of all, what? Yeah. And that's when we started thinking, wait, this might be more. And then that night, I, I think maybe two or three days after we started having some symptoms, Jeff had 103 fever and it did not break. But that was yeah. what a Tuesday night. It didn't break. And then Sunday morning, went you woke three up. days, Sunday morning, you woke up and you couldn't walk across the hall. Yeah. So we had decided to get a COVID test on like a Friday. We got our results back on Saturday, but even then it didn't seem so bad that we couldn't deal with it. I was out working in the yard a little bit. I was breathing hard. It wasn't a challenge. And everyone we knew who had COVID was like, oh, it was like a bad flu or I had a sore throat. So we were just sort of expecting, okay, we're not 70 years old. It's just mm -hmm. gonna feel like that and we'll move on. Cause how yeah. old are you, Jeff? I'm 49 yeah. and I'm also pretty active. So- Mountain I biker. Yeah, I was out twice a week mountain biking. In fact, the first day I felt symptoms was when we were mountain biking with my friend, which by the way, was the first time we saw 
anyone in two months because it was his birthday. And even then I wore a mask, which thank goodness I did because I was the one who was carrying COVID. And he was fine. So it was, it was pretty crazy. Like she said, I woke up, I couldn't breathe. I called my doctor and I think in sort of a classic understatement, I said, you know, I got tested for COVID. It seems to be progressing. Could you maybe call in a prescription for me? He's thinking maybe cough syrup, something. (laughs) She calls me back. And just in like the five minutes we're talking, she says, this is a Sunday morning. She says, I can tell from the way you're talking that you are seriously sick. You have to get to the hospital right now. And they are going to admit you to the ICU. And, you know, so pack a bag, basically. There was basically like a mash tent outside. She wasn't allowed to leave the car. I got in, they tested my oxygen and I was at 65. And, you know, they said, I'm really surprised you can walk and talk. And I said, well, I'm barely managing. We went in, they took me in immediately to the the hospital and I was admitted to the ICU maybe 10 minutes later. So they were, they were on it. Mm-hmm. So he was circling the block. Cause and- I was just thinking they're, they're going to do some checking and give him an inhaler and <laughs> nope. No, but finally I gave up and I went home and I thought he'll just call me. And you texted me like at midnight saying I'm in the ICU. No, I, I did actually call you a couple of hours um, or hour. So as soon as they admitted me, I called you and said, don't wait, don't wait. <laughs> and, I, and I had already gone home. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank goodness then that that worked out. Wow. And so you were on high flow nasal cannula for a while for mm-hmm. just the night. No, actually for the first couple of nights, they, Tuesday, you went I made it basically two nights in the hospital before I was intubated. The first night was brutal. They, you didn't sleep. So first of all, I'm an, I'm an insomniac and I don't sleep under the best of conditions. They wouldn't give me my, my sleep meds or anxiety, or meds. anxiety meds, which are all, so everything's off the chart there. And then I couldn't breathe in that night. I sat there in the hospital bed, trying not to think about breathing, but only being able to think about breathing. And, you know, as you know, as having been there, they have two numbers that you have to pay attention to, you know, your, your oxygen saturation and your breaths per minute. And if you don't breathe enough, then you, your oxygen levels drop below 90 and the alarms go off. And if you breathe too often over, I'm blanking on how many beats per minute or breaths per minute, but alarms go off. And so you're sitting there just watching it. There's no one else around you. Hours and hours of trying to sleep. And I tried to relax. And the only things I could think of are meditation, which require breathing. (laughs) So I couldn't, I couldn't relax. I was just sitting there just in a spiral and I moved to grab a pillow and I started coughing and my, you know, and started, yeah, started coughing. And it took me probably an hour to recover from like grabbing a pillow. And, and it's just this kind of thing. It's, it's sort of, there was this moment when I realized that I I had forgotten how to breathe. I couldn't, I couldn't do it the way that, that you're supposed to do it because of all the stuff that was happening to my body. 
Yeah. And you were, you were thinking if you went to sleep that you're, you might forget to breathe. Yeah. They were worried about that. They were worried that I, that, and that was ultimately why they intubated me. The second night I actually did a lot better. They gave me my sleep meds, but I, and I was like sleeping on my stomach and I would look up and kind of see the numbers. And I remember thinking like, that's some really good breathing. Like I was super proud of myself and I woke up in the morning and the head of the ICU came in and he said, Hey, you're not doing super well, or we've got to intubate you. And I just remember feeling, as I said, kind of betrayed and annoyed, you know, be annoyed because I'd worked <laughs> so hard right. to breathe properly and it didn't matter. Yeah. And when they went to intubate you, did they give you any options, discuss anything with either of you as far as how to be treated on the ventilator, what your preference was as far as sedation went? It, it was, your doctor called me and said, this is the best thing for his lungs right now. His lungs, he's just exhausted and he needs some rest and he's not going to be able to rest if he can't breathe and his saturation levels are just dropping every time he's active. This is the best thing for him. And I said, okay, well, what does, what does that mean? And he said, well, we're going to have to give him sedation so that he's comfortable. Okay. So sedation, like he's going to be calm, like on a Vicodin or Percocet or something like that, or sedation as in a sleep. Am I still going to be able to text him or, and he's like, oh no, he's going to be asleep. And I was like, oh, oh, uh, oh, for how long? He's like, well, some people just need this for a few hours or a few days. Your husband's young and healthy. I, you know, just might be a few days. Yeah. So, so that's what I was told. So they didn't tell me that at all. They told me that I was going to be intubated and I knew sort of what it meant from like everybody else from watching ER. <laughs> and so I knew from reading accounts of COVID that that meant you couldn't talk to, to your family. And I was worried that if things went sideways, that I wouldn't be able to say goodbye like with my voice, you know, but I always pictured myself conscious. He thought he was going to be awake. Yeah. And so he went in thinking, he said, yeah. he, he said the same thing to me. He said, you're going to be sedated. And, and I'm like, okay, that seems fair. I don't like sedation, but I thought kind of like she said, I thought that would be like doped Valium up, like, or, yeah. doped, doped up like um, Vicodin, like after you get like a knee surgery or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and when we said goodbye, when I, when, when I said goodbye to these guys, I said, as soon as I'm able, I'll text you and let you know how I'm doing. And I planned on writing um, about this because I've been taking, writing daily updates about this whole experience. And Sunny said, you're not going to be, I don't alive. think so. <laughs> so oh. I, ha I had to tell him that he was going to sleep. And then meanwhile, he's like, what? yeah, no, once you're under, you're under what? And his alarm started going off. Mm -hmm. And the plan was actually the plan was to have you intubated around 6pm, so that you could talk to your parents, your best friends and your family. Mm -hmm. And so I was busy setting up zoom calls. Let, let's get the best friendies together. Let's get the family together. Mm -hmm. Let's get the and then you texted me and said, we have to do this sooner than later get the kids now. So I pulled them out of class. They were an online class and they didn't know at all what was going on. I had to tell them 
like while the nurse was connecting Zoom, I'm like, so guys, do you know what intubation is? Your uh, dad is. And so we could share the video with you if you're interested. And, and um, on the CBS clip. Yeah. Oh, there's a, that the we'll share just a little, little bit. Yeah. Well, we can share the yeah, the rest of it on. Um, yeah. So I had to explain. Well. I had to explain to them within just a couple minutes what was about to happen. And so they were hearing it for the first time. And then he's saying goodbye and the kids are still processing. And then the alarms and the alarms and the alarms and the oh. alarms. And they're like, we got to do it now. And I'm like, but your fan, whatever. And he's like, I bleh, tell them I love them. And you still, Jeff, you didn't know that that was going to be like that. You were going to be completely rendered, I guess, helpless. I didn't know. So, she, so it's funny until you, until we, I watched the video again. You didn't I, remember saying I didn't goodbye. remember saying well, no, I remember saying it by sort of, but I didn't remember, especially I was watching it and I, and I realized that I didn't register even after Sunny said it, that I was going to be knocked out because she was kind of nice about it. Mm-hmm. She, she said yeah, I didn't want to freak she, the kids. She out. was like, I don't think so. And and so I kind of still persisted. So really that was a shock. And the doctor had told me, he said, look, you're in really great health. A lot of people like you are maybe out for like two or three days. And so that's what I thought might happen at the worst case scenario. And I woke up three weeks later. And when people go into surgery, we know that you're going to be so out that you're not going to feel anything with surgery. Right. And that's a great use for sedation. Right. But you make such a good point that we don't tell people that they're going to be that out. No, I think. Um, oh, and in, with surgery, you expect, oh, I'm having a C-section. I don't want to be awake. And they're like, no, you'll be awake. But the, like, like they tell you. Yeah, exactly. Or, That's oh, fine. I'm getting my tonsils out. Am I going to be? A, no, you're going to be asleep. Like they're clear. You know, and, we, and I guess we can get into it. I, I did a previous episode on the right to know, mm-hmm. you know, my concern is that we're not transparent with patients or families as far as, I mean, Sonny got a little bit of a heads up and yet I have a problem with the doctor still saying the word sleep, that he's going to be more comfortable. Those are very cultural terms that defy all research and mm-hmm. survivor testimonials. Yeah. So that's the misinformation you were fed Sonny and Jeff was completely uninformed of what would happen. There was no warning saying, Hey, you might have some you might get really confused. You might have these delusions, hallucinations, and it's not to mention there was no option given. Right. No op- said, hey, if yeah. you can choose, if we sedate you, you are at increased risk of being on the ventilator, ventilator longer, of massive atrophy, of having delirium, post ICU PTSD, post ICU dementia, infection, death. None of that was he, mentioned. He to could you could turn down the intubation. You could have done a DNI. Yep. I'm basically just saying I'm ready to die. Yeah. Which you weren't, but we could have, you know, given you options of, Hey, would you rather be knocked out and then risk going into delirium and having these lifelong repercussions, disability, or do you want to try waking up after intubation and see what you need? Mm -hmm. See if you need more, something for pain, something for anxiety. We can continue your baseline medications for anxiety we can increase it from there. We can do things so that you can still text your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say goodbye if it's really time to say goodbye. You can yeah. make your choices. You can get up. You can get off the ventilator quicker. 
you might be able to avoid a tracheostomy. I mean, if someone had given you or Sunny, I mean, it's kind of an emergent intubation, but you still had a day or two to discuss it. If someone had given you those choices, what would you have chosen for yourself or for Jeff? You, you go first. You go first. I think you need to go first because I have a lot to say about this. Okay. I mean, I will say on the one hand, Sunny went through some serious trauma as a result of this because she was awake for everything that happened, every like little turn that happened. And so I didn't have that. Like I went to sleep and I woke up three weeks later and I did have some things in the middle, which we'll talk about. But for the most part, I avoided, I would say serious trauma because I was just not in the picture. That said, I think that if I had had the ability to have any kind of control over my destiny in all of this, I think I would have gotten better much faster. I am known oh, for being, 100%. Sunny will tell you this. I don't even hear the word no. Like I've been told no so much my whole life growing up the way I did that like I have just sort of like, just sort of like made myself immune to it. And I think that would have really kicked in. And I am stronger, you know, because of my size and things like that. Like, I feel like I could have actually been a part of my healing as opposed to sort of like having people sort of randomly making decisions for me and not letting me be, be a part of, of that recovery. Absolutely. And one of our survivors, I can't remember which episode, but the first ARDS survivor I interviewed that had gone through the process at, in the awake and walking ICU, he talked about what it meant to him to be able to connect with his wife. And he said, I'm not sure if she could have endured having me be sedated, like he was also a support for her as she went through this process of wondering if this is the last time she would see him, if it was the last conversation to hear his voice, they were at, they, she, at that time was at his bedside. And he just felt like he was able to support her and they supported each other during that process because he was still there. So I, Sunny, what would that have meant to you? And what would you have chosen? Well, Jeff and I have a, right. We have a thing. One person's allowed to be crazy at a time. One person's allowed to have their life upside down at a time. And we trade every few months, you know, he's an author. So when a book is due, I drop as much as I can to help him make sure he meets his deadlines. And I read every chapter and make sure there's food coming to his desk. I, I teach. And so during midterms and finals, I'm a basket case. Oh, and the first week of school, I'm a basket case. And this guy's helping me film what I need to set up my website. He's feeding me, making, uh -huh. you know, and that's, we have this rhythm that's how our life works. Well, COVID knocked my life upside down on March 13th last year, because all of my classes had to go online with two days notice. And I don't teach a thing that I can just put online. I had to record pre-record lectures because nothing could be live and pre-recording lectures for four classes. And each class is normally six hours long. I was working 80, 90 hour weeks, recording, editing, posting, making sure the videos are 
accessible for deaf people, for blind mm -hmm. people, for whatever, like all this extra work. Whereas normally I just walk into school and be like, hey guys, what are we doing today? Right. And then at the end of my semester, I thought I have a summer off. Nope, I don't because our school chancellor decided that every single instructor that teaches at our college had to be officially certified to teach online. That was 625 instructors and there were two trainers on staff. So they recruited me to be a trainer that summer and I trained four different sections of instructors and it overlapped my finals. It overlapped my first week of the next semester. So from March 13th until just about Christmas, I didn't have one day off, not one Saturday, not one Sunday. I was working till midnight most nights. Christmas hit, we did take a little vacation and then I, I was just in bed. I was a basket case. Then we got COVID. Mm. Then Jeff went to the hospital and my school started two weeks later. So I had to choose whether to find a substitute, cancel all my classes, which would mean I don't, I didn't even know what that meant. Do I not have an income? And he's self-employed. So like, what's that all about? And then I'm thinking, okay, I, I think I probably have enough sick time, but then wait a minute. I have these students that need to graduate and I don't have a sub for them. I, I couldn't find ever somebody to do all that garbage I was doing 80 hours a week of recording. Mm -hmm. And these students I've known for years needed to graduate. So I'm like, I have to do this. I have to teach. So while I'm managing his care and you and Remotely. having conversations with the doctors and reminding them about, Hey, he needs this med and this med and this med, and then trying to be the mom of three teens who are going through their own nightmare. I had to do all this extra ridiculous amount of work and I didn't have my rock. And I don't think I slept for two or three days in a row when my term started. And then once it started, I would record and then I would edit. And sometimes I'd remember to post the video, but more often I would wake up with like keyboard face mm. and the sun shining in my office window. So I spent most of my nights at my desk with my phone next to me waiting for the doctor to call. We got one call a day and it was whenever the doctor could call and one call a day. I couldn't visit, you know, I mean, and meanwhile, I had COVID, my kids all had COVID, but when you teach you, you don't just get to take a break and be like, I, I can't start this semester right now. Life doesn't work that way. Catch up with you guys later. Yeah. Like, oh, so sorry. You can't take this one last class to graduate. That means you can't, that means you have to wait a whole nother year again. Cause we only offer it once a year. Sorry. So sorry. My life is more important than yours. Like that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So what would have meant to you <laughs> look at your phone and see a zoom call from Jeff, even if you could. Oh my gosh. I remember the first night he was intubated. I had the call from the doctor and then I just thought that was it. And, you know, I hung up and I'm sobbing and taking notes and I had promised Jeff that I would keep copious notes and inform his family and inform friends. And so I just picked up where he left off. 
And so I just, my catharsis was to write and just to put it all down and share. And I remember the phone rang and it was his nurse. And she said, there's a beautiful sunset outside. And I just turned his bed so that he could feel the sunset. She's like, I know he's asleep, but I hope he can feel this gorgeous sunset. And she's like, and I've also set up a Zoom call for you. I'm like, what? She's like, because he needs to hear your voice. He needs to hear you as much as. And so I was like, okay, I have stuff to do, but yes. So I just sat there and talked for like an hour. And then I'd talk with his nurse and oh my gosh, she's the best. Her name was Honey, Honey and Sunny. Oh, she was amazing. But like, if, oh my gosh, if I could have just been texting with him going, I, I don't know what to do. This one particular child is having a really tough time today. What do I do? I'm having a tough time. Like I needed a co-parent. I needed a partner. I needed somebody to to cry to because I didn't have someone to cry to. Yeah, she had to kind of be... Things were already really strained with family for political reasons. So like I was just alone. Yeah. And she was, she was carrying everything. Wow. Everything. And even in normal circumstances, not having your rock. (laughs) I know. And it was already abnormal. I was already, I had nothing left. I had nothing left. And so to then have to like suddenly turn on and be this advocate and hey no you you gave him the wrong medication at the wrong time you gave him the wrong dose no you no he needs that at night and that one in the morning you got it wrong yeah oh and the families are i mean they're an essential part of the icu team and we we cut them out yeah i mean yeah. you already had covid yeah <laughs> and exactly. you could be in the covid unit yeah oh and that's the other that's the other thing we talked to a, a wonderful amazing doctor rana oddish she wrote the book. What was it called? In shock. In shock. Holy, you need to read that book. If you haven't, I need to have her on. Oh, she is such a lovely, gorgeous, amazing human being. She was saying a friend at another hospital was having his nurses sneak down PPE gear to the wives and sneak them up to have them be in there. And he said, Oh, what, what was it? So our hospital had a 29% survival rate for intubated COVID, which is much better than the 50-50 yes. I read about. Yes. Oh no, they had, they had, sorry. Or yeah. 29% mortality, mortality rate. rate. Yeah. Right, uh, that's, sorry, that's what I was understanding, yeah. And this particular hospital was like down to like 7%. Yeah, it was. In- and it's not that they were still sedating patients because that's what they do, right. but it was family involvement and the family involvement was keeping the delirium more away. I mean, we had an episode with Louise Bestian. She talked about a patient that was maxed out in all the ventilator settings. They brought the family in only because it was supposed to be end of life. He was supposed to be dying, but his family came in the next day. He was just about excavated. Yeah. And he said, I needed them. Yes. Yeah. That's how powerful family is. We take out the most potent medication we have to ward off delirium, to improve survival. We took that away during a deadly disease. Yep. Yeah. 100%. What sense does that make? And we increase risks of post ICU PTSD for the patient being under sedation, but also your and the family and the family. That's how the separation, that kind of heartbreak, stress impacts outcomes all around. 
So you're going through this whole hell. Yep. <laughs> Outside of the hospital. We talked about the hospital being a war zone, but you were living in a war zone. And Jeff, what were you experiencing <sighs> while you were quote unquote asleep and quote unquote? Sure. Oh, so, oh, there's a really bed. What was going on in your world? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I don't remember a single thing while asleep. Like there was just nothing. And I don't know if that's common for patients or not, but there was, there's no dreaming. I don't remember a single dream. Oh, and real quick though, Jeff's a big guy. Six, so five. He needed, yes, six, five. He needed an absolute tonnage of sedation, like much more than expected. And I was like, you know, my dentist mentioned something about people with redheaded genes needing more medication. And somebody was like, oh, I heard about that. And they looked it up and, oh yeah, that's actually true. I'm like, well, he's got red sideburns and half his family, <laughs> they're redheads. And they're like, that's why we have to keep giving. So he was on bucket loads of five different medications. Yeah, my ICU director normally likes to wean people off sedation as soon as possible. She's pretty aggressive about yeah. it. And she came onto the case and, and, oh, um, she's lovely. and I had warned them in advance, this was going to be something you'd have to worry about. And they, and she said, or when she came on, they said, she, she started talking about taking me off, like being more aggressive. And they said, yeah, that's not going to work. Like this guy is going to need everything you're throwing his way. Because every time you started to come out of sedation, what was your behavior like? So it was, it was, they uh, were afraid. They would kind of bring me up and put me down almost immediately again. Uh, I, at the end of the stay in the hospital, a respiratory therapist came in who had been part of one of those kind of efforts to wean me off sedation. And and she said, I remember you from this. And I said, what was I like? Like, I'm just curious because I was starting to write down, you know, kind of like memories and try to put things together. And she's like, she's like, oh, you were a wild one. Like mm -hmm. she said, the second you woke up, you would try to stand up. You try to leave the bed. And that's when they started strapping me down because. Oh, I, you were strapped down while you were asleep. Well, yeah, I know that, but that's why they did. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what was going on. Right. No, I had no idea. And then she said, the other thing that I did, which she had never seen anyone do before, is that I would make what she called farting sounds uh, like into the, into the, into the tube. And I remembered that. And I told her that, and I said, I was trying to talk to you. Like I was trying to communicate and I couldn't, you know? And so, you know, when you asked about kind of what I remember, what would happen is I would, I woke up in these like series of flashes and, and the room always seemed dim. And I don't know if that was my eyesight, eyesight or like they literally lowered the lights for me. I don't know, but it was always dark. I felt, and, and people would come by me in these yellow PPE outfits. And it felt like I was in a car wash, like with like the brushes kind of coming by you, like everything was just kind of flashing by. And this probably happened over the course of many, many days. But I remember people leaning over me and saying, you're going to be okay we need you to calm down, you know, like it was all that kind of stuff. At one point a nurse said, Hey, I know you're really agitated, but you're doing better. You're going to be okay. And she kind of used the uh, good cop, bad cop. She's like, I think you're doing awesome, but the new nurse is coming on in an hour and 
I don't want her to think she has to make her own judgment. I don't want you, her to think that you're not ready to kind of move to the next level. So so she's used that as like a way to get me to behave. And it actually did kind of work. Because you wanted, you wanted to be awake. You wanted to be aware of your environment. Is that right? Yeah. And everybody, you know, everyone's dressed in yellow. They're wearing face shields. They have, they have, they look like minions. They've got, they look like human minions is really the best way I can describe it. That's what I thought when I was seeing it. And, you know, if you're a little bit older, it reminds you of the scene in ET and just as horrifying, you know, just people leaning over to you. There's, you can only see their eyes. They have no personality, nothing. And, and I didn't know who these people were. They weren't introducing themselves to me. And you're just getting like foggy clips, right? You're just kind of like barely getting to the surface. I, I've had someone awake come back down again. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's almost like someone like your head's underwater. They bring you out. They pull your head out out of water just enough. So you barely get a breath, but you don't really get to like recover and they slam you back down. Yeah. And I would say the pulling out of water is a really good metaphor because you kind of have that like gasp of like, (laughs) I'm alive, I'm awake. And like, you're trying to like make sense of things. And then it's just like, boom, you know? Yeah. And if you had been able to stay awake longer, gather yourself a little bit more and communicate. Mm -hmm. How much would that have helped being able to be off sedation or just your agitation? If you could have really been able to express yourself or get questions answered. You know, it's something that like, I would say the communication is something that for me is the most important part of my experience and the lack thereof, I obviously is what led to, I think, challenges. So first of all, I don't remember anyone saying to me at any time, as they're leaning over me and dealing with this, I don't remember a single person saying, here's what's happening. And here's what we need you to do. And I think if I had known those two things, it would have made a big difference. What happened instead is that people would be looking over me, they wouldn't tell me that they didn't tell me their names. And maybe they told me their names, but I don't remember because I wasn't coherent enough the first time. And so the first day that you were able, you were really lucid. So I had conversations with you for a few days, but I want to say it was day four or five. He was really lucid for the first time since he went into the hospital and he had the the trach tube in and we were on zoom and I was asking him questions and he was attempting to type the answers or like I'd ask yes, no questions and yes, no. And it was the craziest conversation because I read his lips and he said, what happened to me? And I was like, well, you have, you remember you have COVID. Yeah. Well, they had to intubate you and you have a tracheostomy and he's like, no, no. What happened to me? Well, you, do you want to know how long you were asleep? Yeah. Are, are you sure? Are you ready for this? Do you want to know how long you were asleep? Yeah. And I said, all right, well, pretty much it was like 21 days, but really 23 days when you count all the testing and whatever. What? Yeah. You lost three weeks and he had no idea, no idea. And none, none of it, none of it. And so I started going through and, and saying, okay, let tell me what you need to, to make you feel better. And it took about an hour and a half, but we came up with a list 
turn off the damn TV because they had this TV on just da, 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 and was yeah. making him so anxious. Get rid of the restraints because that was making him angry. Hand me my phone, hand me my laptop, whatever. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. What? So we had this big old list. And the second your nurse came in, I'm like, get over here. <laughs> I have the list. We have some things we have to go over. Are you at the bedside or is this over Zoom? It, over Zoom. Wow. And I was like, okay. Number one, hand Jeff his phone. Well, he's not going to be able to use it yet. I'm like, let him decide. Let him work on it. That's let him try. Like, isn't that occupational therapy? Yeah. I'm like, hand him his laptop. He'll be able to handle that better. Oh, probably not. I'm like, hand it to him. And I said, remove his restraints. Oh, well, we're afraid he's going to pull out whatever. I'm like, Jeff, will you agree right now to the nurse that you're not going to pull any tubes out? He's like, uh-huh. I'm like, get rid of the restraints. Yeah. And, and so we went through this whole list, but meanwhile, I'm having this conversation with Jeff and his nurse. And I think this is okay. We're making headway, but Jeff has a whole different experience. He had, we were having a different conversation. Yeah. So there's a few things in there that I want to talk about, by the way, she yeah. was much nicer to the, nurse I was nicer to the nurse than what she sounded yes. like right and now. You saw that kind of desperation. Yeah. I, I always say she was like a hostage negotiation. <laughs> Like she was just like, all right, can we do something? It was like this. I'll, I'll just do it really quick because it was awesome. I'm sitting there because I couldn't speak. And she was like, so can we do something about the restraints? You know, and then she's like, Jeff will agree to, to, uh, to so it was like that, you know, and, and it was pretty awesome. Like, it was amazing to see. And amazing that you understood him over Zoom with lip reading. Oh, we've been like, married forever. Right. Yeah. You speak Jeff. And so why wouldn't yeah. someone want that translator there at the bedside? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but it, she mentioned something about the fact when, when she, when I asked what happened, she told me that I had a tracheostomy and she was, by the way, had to make that decision while I was unconscious and was really upset by that and was worried that she'd done the wrong thing. And I told her she'd done the right thing. But how much would have helped to be able to, one, for you to make your own decision to, to discuss it together during that yeah. process? Yeah, for sure. Well, the thing is, I didn't know that it happened in well, that no caused a really big problem because I woke up after some period of, of sedation and I could tell something was different. I didn't know exactly what it was, but I knew that I should be able to talk. I didn't feel the tube in my mouth. So the nurse comes into the room. I try to talk to her. Nothing comes out, no sound. I think that something's happened to my vocal cords. I think that I, they've been damaged because of COVID, that they've been cut because of some procedure. I don't know. So I call the nurse over and I try to mouth the words, I can't talk. And she doesn't understand it. And I point at my mouth over and over again. And she says, is it your, your, your teeth? Do your teeth hurt? Uh, I'm like, no, 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 no. And I said, you know, try to point again. And she said, is your, your tongue, your tongue hurt? And finally she says, you know, I'm sorry, I can't understand you. So I make motions to, to have her bring paper over. She brings me over, you know, a, a Sharpie and a big piece of kind of cardboard. I really don't know what it was. And I try to write, I can't talk on it. And his hands are like this. And, and so you spent three weeks, not moving. You're too weak yeah. to write. Yeah. My hands are shaking, but also I just don't have much depth perception at that point. Mm. And 
we used to play this game when we were in church like we would sit next to each other and we would write words on each other's back using just our fingers Uh and you try to guess by touch like what it was but it was really challenging because it's all in the same place and you don't really know where one word begins and it was honestly kind of like that with with these letters that I was writing and they were all on top of each other so if you looked at it probably would look just like this like random abstract art thing you know yeah, but the could, nurse isn't following along that he's writing T-H-A on top of, because he couldn't move his hand. It was just one letter right. on top of the other, on top of the other. And it's definitely a skill set in the Wake and Walking ICU, the delirium handwriting. Um, yeah. It's a skill set. It truly is. And so they probably weren't wow. used to that. Yeah. And so they could, they, I could, I just kind of gave up. I couldn't communicate that. And it wasn't until I woke up for good and Sonny was talking to me that I finally realized that I had a tracheostomy and that's why I couldn't, wasn't able to speak before. Nobody told them. So I knew that the tube was gone, but I didn't know that I still had something that was preventing me from speaking. So if someone had said, Hey, you're going to, you had a tracheostomy. It was successful. You're not going to be able to speak any for a while. So don't worry about it. Like, we'll be, that's going to be a process we're going to through. Like all the things would have made sense in, in talking to some of other doctors since then, you know, they all said that what they did in those moments when patients are coming out of sedation, so they have a trained, you know, respiratory therapist and a nurse time or a nurse, sometimes both to essentially walk you through it to say, this is what you're experiencing. This is what you're feeling. Like, this is what we need you to do. And I think having that kind of level of communication and having that kind of involvement in your own recovery is really crucial. But meanwhile, when Jeff asked, what happened to me? Where am I? Why am I here? I should probably tell that story. I know. I was thinking, he's asking, what's going on with my neck? Why am I in this room? And we had a whole different conversation. He had no idea where he was. Yeah. And he thought he was wanted for murder. Yeah. So you mentioned. <laughs> you didn't have experiences maybe while you were sedated, but you coming out, you were, you were delirious. I was in completely different places when I came out. And so this happened both of their two episodes. I'll tell you one that's more absurd. And then one that, feel felt very real but there were things that happened after in some cases i already talked to sunny and and i was starting to get better but they were still i was still going under for periods of time and and they were full-on hallucinations and and interestingly both of them were about me leaving the hospital like i clearly was ready to go in my brain and the first one i was being transferred to a hospital or to Portland. And, it, and I was actually well enough that I could get on a plane. I remember literally looking kind of like leaning against a window, sleepy and looking out as like at, you know, LA as I was taking off. And I landed in Portland for the very awesome reason that they had asked me to be a halftime guest for the Portland Trail Blazers. <laughs> That's not so bad. Yeah. Right. Because I guess that's what you want as a COVID survivor um, there in the middle of a really crowded arena. Um, I was replacing former trailblazer star 
who was there and he was like a local guy who owned a chicken chain and had hair like <laughs> MacGyver, if any of you guys ever remember that show. And so like started thinking it was like chicken MacGyver. Anyway, I'm sitting in a hotel room waiting for, for this. And I've got a nurse there and they, and I keep on saying, shouldn't we be going over to the stadium at this point? And they, they don't do anything. The nurse is just still kind of waiting. She's sitting next to me, like eating her dinner and Finally, I see like the game starting and I see literally Chicken MacGyver in the crowd ready for it to come on for his thing. So I was really annoyed and I look over and she's actually eating chicken from his chicken chain. So it was sort of like felt like this betrayal. So that was one where like (laughs) I did finally figure that wasn't real. But the second time was pretty terrifying. So I was being transferred to a hospital in Northern California. And it was, I think something that I had requested for some reason, it seemed like the right hospital. And I got up there, they actually flew me on a life flight, but they had, I was staying in like a hotel room or a hospital room, really not sure. Cause that part was a little vague. And I had my phone next to me and I, you know, I wasn't sleeping well through this whole experience because of my insomnia. And I got a call at 5am, a phone call from someone on my cell phone. And I kind of missed the call and I put it down and started to go back to sleep. And then they called me again. And then like that really woke me up. And so that made me mad. And I called them back and I yelled at them and I said, you can't do that. I don't sleep well. And I'm so sick. I need my, I need to be able to sleep. And they kind of, and, but then I just hung up. I didn't bother to hear what they had to say or have them apologize. And I get a text on my phone about like an hour later when I wake up it said, the person you were calling crashed as a result of that call and died. And we want to talk to you about charges of involuntary manslaughter. And which is we had someone who had something similar to happen. Like she blacked out while driving a car because of a medical condition and killed a mother of three. And she actually served jail time for it, you know? So like oh, it's house just something arrest. house mm-hmm. arrest. Sorry. But yeah, but she has a criminal record because of it. And, and so I wake up in a hospital room. I don't recognize it's in this new hospital. I remember the address and the logo and all this stuff, the conversations happening. And I'm sitting there waiting for the police to come and they don't come and, and no one's mentioning it, but I'm sitting there going like, why am I here? It, why am I in something that's not an ICU? Clearly I need to be in a better place. I'm trying to talk to them, but I can't talk to them. And, and that's uh, when our zoom starts. And he said, why am I here? What's happened? What's going on? Yeah. And, and a lot like, of survivors talk about that's not just like a, it's almost like it's not just a delusion. It's not just a nightmare. Like it's vivid. It's so real. Oh, it was, it was, well, it was part dream. Parts of it were clearly a dream and parts of it, like the signage was actually different. Like they write every day on the glass door, like kind of whatever kind of messages they need to leave for each other. And they were different. They were specific to that hospital. Like, you know, it was like, talking about certain kinds of classes that they were teaching that they weren't actually teaching, you know, like it was, there's me filling this in. 
I was hearing like a radio broadcast and it was, you know, it was for the, for this, like, like an evangelical, the hospital that I was staying in was like this evangelically owned and hospital that had a lot of scandal about the way they're treating patients. And, and so, and I was like, and I was kind of hearing about this on the radio while I'm like realizing that's where I'm staying. So you're like, why am I here? Why did I pick this? Why do you think it's a good idea? You know? And, and Sunny calls me or we call, I call her and we're talking and I do ask her that. And so I say, what happened, but she thinks means what Trachiosmi, which actually was legitimate information I should have had. But then I said, why am I here? And what I meant was, why did you let me go? Like, why did you think this was a good idea for me to transfer transfer (sighs) mid COVID? And basically where are the cops and what's going to happen to me now? And I'm like, well, now you're going to recover and they're going to send you to a rehabilitation center. And he's like, but he couldn't explain. Yeah. So I woke up the next day in the exact same room which I hadn't recognized and it was the ICU and the signs were different. And the address of the hospital from the day was before back was back to not like mm. there had been an address on the door. I remember like, literally it was like, I remember the street number that it was, that, that was there. I, I was so seeing it changed it my, the way you perceived your whole environment. Yeah. I was fully awake. I saw this with my own eyes and the next day it was different. We give sedation because we think that it spares people anxiety, trauma, <laughs> stress. Yeah. We think yeah. that the reality that I see was so traumatizing that we better spare everyone of that. Yeah. Um, and yet we're so oblivious to these other scenarios that we send them into that perhaps I personally would rather know that I'm critically ill in the ICU than think that I had killed someone. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think like all things being equal, but it was also, <laughs> you know, I'm not a person who is prone to anxiety. Like I, you know, I, my day job is I, in public relations, like I have sort of pride myself on the ability to like, keep a level head in any situation. And I suffered extreme anxiety in this. And it wasn't because I couldn't handle the situation. It was because I was being held down, you know, like I, if there's one, if there's one thing I, that, that I, I know I need is the ability to be in control. And you were stripped of that. And I had mentally, emotionally, Mm -hmm. physically, and physically stripped of that, which I mean, and the COVID unit, the wake and walk and ICU patients are sitting on their phones, texting with their hands Mm -hmm. untied. I had a patient, I, I refer to this often on the podcast, but it was, I had a patient that coughed so hard that their tubing disconnected from their, the the ventilator tubing disconnected from their endotracheal tube and they held it together at first from the outside looked like they were about to pull their tube out which didn't make sense because this person had their coping mechanisms intact because they were never sedated Mm -hmm. and they got in there um, and said don't pull it don't pull it the person looked at them like they were crazy said are you joking me i'm keeping my tubing together so i get air and pressure from the ventilator i know what this is for yeah they yeah they're in, in they're in on it yeah yeah yeah, they're in on it they're they have their autonomy preserved and they can sit there and scroll through facebook they can sit there and text and zoom their family at their leisure i mean COVID affects you know the people come despondent and and things like that but they have the opportunity to be in on their care and what would that have meant to both of you Mm -hmm. to have been able to be yourself yeah sweat during COVID 19 on the ventilator 
Yeah, it would have made all the difference for sure. You mentioned that you suspected you would have gotten off the ventilator quicker. Research would support that. But what's your perception of that? I mean, Sonny can talk about, maybe Sonny talk about first what they were telling you. And I can tell you kind of what I was experiencing. Every, every ventilator trial. Well, no, first of all, before that, you, you were not handling being moved at all. Like even just shifting a pillow, his sats would just drop. And so they had to use a ton of paralytics okay. because he was just so agitated, just so, so agitated. So they had to keep him so far down just so that he wasn't fighting the vent. He wasn't startling. Do you know um, what his ventilator settings were? Um, at one, when I really started tracking it, it was, I mean, at one point you were at a hundred percent and what was it? Eight, a peep of eight. And the, the whole goal was to try to get him down to a five or a three, but they were needing to keep the pressure really high because his lungs are so much bigger than that. What the, the doctor said, the average five foot six person. Mm-hmm. So he, he was needing higher oxygen and higher pressure and more meds. Cause he's so big, but that also meant that they had to keep him on this protocol longer because he didn't meet the, the, the requirements for when they felt okay about lifting stuff. Interesting. And it was just this, this sort of like chicken and egg thing. They couldn't like reduce the pressure because his lungs weren't. Yeah. So, you know, it's, but it's a really good question. The, I think the reality is, is that I woke up several times and had to be immediately put down because I, I love that I word, use the word put down. Like I'm a rabid oh. dog, but that's what <laughs> it felt sleep, like. Right? Oh, yeah. but, but I was kind of like literally a threat to people, you know, I I'm mean, these teeny six, tiny nurses, six, six, five. And I, at the time when I went in, I was 250 pounds, you know, I was 200, 200 pounds when I came back out, but you were 250 pounds going in. Yep. Yeah. You lost 200 pounds. coming out. You lost 50 pounds. Wow. Yeah. 49 days, 50 pounds. Yeah. Which is great because honestly, I was trying to lose weight anyway. <laughs> Not so that much. Us. We lost the wrong kind of weight. I, I, know, I know, but you know, but the, the, so they would kind of do this, bring me back up, put me back down. And because I wasn't, I would, because I was anxious and it's interesting. Like I said this to later, we, we interviewed our head of the ICU for our book. And she said, um, and I made the point that if I had been able to manage my anxiety, I think I would have been only been on the, the vent for like, say three or four days. Like, I think I could have come out pretty quickly or, or maybe a week. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not obviously not professional. So no. I don't know that, but I know that it would have been a lot faster. And she said, well, yeah, she's like, but you know, the reason why you were, had to be put down, back down, down each time was because you're fighting the vent. Which people, the number one reason for people fighting the vent is because of anxiety. So really it's tomato, tomato. Yeah. Like, and and this the other thing, cycle. Yeah. And you, you had, a, you were feverish for almost the entire time you were there. So they had him on a cooling blanket, under a cooling blanket. And when he would wake up, he would be so cold and just right unbearably cold that you would start like banging your legs to try to kick the blanket off 
And so the nurses would come in and be like, no, we got to knock him out again. He's, he's, he's banging. He's agitated. Instead of being told. Hey, I'm miserable. you have 103 fever. Yeah. This is well, they did say that, yeah. but I was also like, you know what? I'm not going to die from a fever. Just let me like be comfortable <laughs> here. Right. Yeah. I really feel like we can p- treat pain anxiety better when patients can communicate it to us. Yeah. Um, you talked about, it sounds like you had some sort of ileus, like you, your bowel stopped working, but probably because you're on so much of the narcotics that yeah. stopped your bowels. And so that's really uncomfortable too. That all increases your pain when your bowels don't work. So it sounds like potentially had you not been automatically put on the crazy train, Mm -hmm. you would have been able to use your coping mechanisms to be aware of your environment, work with Sunny on it, work with everyone, get your questions answered, not be in this crazy place. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have been fighting the ventilator nearly as much. And that's something that I think a lot of IC providers don't see because we automatically start sedation. We give them delirium. Now we take the back sedation. Cause it sounds like this facility was trying to do the A to F bundle, bundle, which is great. I think you had a great team. Yeah, well, I really did. Initial protocol is diff- difficult. When you give someone delirium, then you have to manage the delirium later. Yeah. And that's what, that's what you were on this crazy train, the coughing, the agitation, the thrashing, when you already have like tenuous lung function, when you have all this erratic breathing and biting, it affects your oxygen saturation. So you're right. Everything played into you being on the ventilator so long mm-hmm. that you lost so much lean muscle, apparently you had to have a tracheostomy, which is kind of provider preference as well as far as timing of tracheostomy. And the, there's this cultural approach. I, I feel like it's cultural that and it's hard because the way can walk in ICU, we hardly ever trach anybody, but it seems like teams aren't comfortable with taking down sedation until they're trached. So I've talked about in an episode on trach and peg. I mean, if you, if you won't move me until I'm trached, then trach me right away. So I don't lose the muscle, but I feel like tracheostomies can be avoided if we don't let people atrophy, but the yeah. studies show that it's, it is safe to move people with endotracheal tubes that maybe tracheostomies are not always essential to be able to move people. And mm. Jeff, you posted something about your tracheostomy. Tell us what it was like once you realized that you had a tracheostomy. What so, was it like after? Oh, <laughs> My tracheostomy for me was the biggest source of trauma in the mm-hmm. entire experience for a couple of reasons kind of both during and after I'll tell you the during part, which was really pretty horrifying. And Sonny's not allowed to comment on this too much because it's, it's, it's it, it, will, it will wind her up, but it's, <laughs> so I was being transferred from the ICU to the floor for the first time in four weeks. My fever finally broke. They finally moved me up and I was COVID free and I was off the vent. So they had a new tracheostomy they had put in. And I remember feeling like, or new trach tube. And when they, when they did it, they didn't do it with any kind of like sedation. And like, I felt like the guy kind of just like shoved it in there. Right. But didn't think too much about it. I did um, the cannula exchange, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, there was a, a banging. I felt like he hammered it in. Yeah. But, but I went up to my room doing fine. I had a lot of blood clots, like people do on, on COVID. So mm-hmm. I was on blood thinners and I, Woke up in the middle of the night, a lot of fluid in my lungs. I was really coughing a lot. And I, so I turned on the, turned on a movie to watch. It was super bad. And, and I was sort of like getting to the end of it, just trying to like, trying to get myself able to fall back asleep. And I start coughing and I look up the bed, like three feet away. 
and there's a spot of blood on it. And I thought, well, that can't be good. And I coughed again and it, it with my mouth closed at this time and it went everywhere. And I looked down and while I was coughing, blood was spurting out of my trach tube. Spraying the bed five feet away. Like everywhere. Um, just everything's covered. It looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. That's, that's how intense it was. So I call in the nurses. They were going to come in anyway, because apparently they get my heparin levels were too high. And so they came in, they gave me fluids to replace the significant amount of blood that I had just lost and, and kind of started to slow things down. And I kind of calmed down, but you know, I'm at this point legitimately panicked because I am coughing blood, you know, yeah, you're hemorrhaging. Um, you have to need a blood transfusion. I didn't have to, but they did give me some fluids. So it wasn't at that wasn't so far, but they came back in or sorry, they went away and I was watching something else, you know, this time an old Saturday Night Live clip and it wasn't even a good one, which is super depressing. And I have to remember this every single time I have this next memory and I started coughing again and it was worse. And I describe it the way it was just like, it was like if someone poured tomato soup into my lungs, that's what it felt like had that. Gurgly. texture and gurgling and every cough is like bringing more into my lungs and so I'm coughing more out and I could feel the blood clots in my mouth with my tongue like I was coughing I had probably like two dozen blood two or three dozen blood clots that I was coughing up during all of this um and they come back in again and you know there's like sort of like not a certain amount I do, but at this point I'm completely panicked and the nurse starts to leave. And I, I just, and I could still talk because of this new trach tube. And I said, you're not leaving. You have to stay here until things are okay, because I don't dare to be alone. And they, they finally get it calmed down. Everything seems to be kind of healing. And they say, you know what, we're going to take you back to the ICU for the day. They just have more capacity to observe you right now. I'm like, okay, fine. I come in, the ENT guy, the same guy who did my procedure before comes in and first of all, does like a, a bronch- bronchoscopy to see what's going on. And he says, it's probably, probably because of the, the, the new trach tube, like it irritated things. This would happen. He's like, so we're going to put in a trach tube with a collar so that if you do start coughing again, it doesn't leak back into your, your, your lungs. I'm like, okay, fine. So it does the same thing. And actually, this is probably the one where he really hammered it in. Like he kind of pulls it out and then just like shoves it in. But and, not, hey, do you think you might want some painkillers? And because I, my lungs are at this point so aggravated, the second he does it, I cough up blood again all over. And this time, he, like he and his assistant, just sort of, they're watching me. And, and uh, you know, after he done, like after he'd done, he, he did wait till I was done. But then like, they just kind of left. And I was literally had the old trach tube sitting on my lap. And I kind of like picked it up. I'm like, oh, that's what that looks they like. I left him in a Bloody. puddle, of, yeah, left puddle him in, of blood with the old trach tube on my lap for a half an hour. Yeah. And my nurse wasn't there. Normally the nurses are there every single moment in the ICU. They're looking through the window at you. Yeah. And she had, she had gone to lunch and she came back, she walks in and I'm covered in blood. And she just says, what did they do to you? You know? And 
and you know, sunny, um, sunny. I got a call at five o'clock that day to say, oh, there is a little bit of a thing and it's fine. He's back now. in the ICU. Oops. Uh, I'm like, wait, what time did this happen? Oh, well, it started in the middle of the night and I guess the procedure was around nine and I'm like, it's five o'clock. Isn't this a thing I should have known about? Yeah, and Sunny and, and has, has a story call. that she could tell there, but I think probably it wouldn't fit into a podcast. But she basically called them, uh, called the the head of the the current attending, talked talk to him about his responsibilities of taking care of patients, which is really important. And not everybody has a Sunny who can do that for you. They did come in, and I will say the actual. I mean, first of all, surgeons, right? But like, but when the actual doctors came in, they were incredibly gentle and they did another bronchoscopy, but it was very like, was full and sedation. And gave you painkillers. They gave me painkillers. And they also offered me a chaplain or a therapist if I needed to talk to someone. I'm like, then I thought, well, that would have been nice to know that that was even an option three weeks ago. Not admission. <laughs> like, yeah. well, because, but it's not necessary. Would have been when handy. When I was waking up, honestly, yeah. like I would have loved to have had a therapist because that was some, some confusing <laughs> times. Oh, there's, I'm going to do a whole episode on how we need to include therapists, psychologists, all the actual mental health experts yeah. into these traumatizing settings. So the one really cool thing that kind of happened at the end of this is we talked to the director of the ICU, who's pretty awesome. Oh, she's amazing. And, and I explained to her everything that I just did. And I said, look, it was pretty cool you guys have like communications boards and you have therapists and stuff like that. I said, but I didn't, I didn't know, first of all, that you had them. Um, And second, I'm not sure I would have had the presence of mind to have asked for someone in a moment like that. It's like, it should have been evident. It's like, why don't you like, why don't you just have someone come in and say, Hey, you're going through a lot. Do you want to talk? Like, can we help you? You just had some trauma. And so the really cool thing though, is that after this conversation about communications, about managing anxiety, the doctor said, who actually does set the policy for the hospital said, this is really great. I don't know that I've heard this perspective from a patient before, and we want to start addressing things. So among other things, she sent me the communications board, which I had never seen and said, and said, 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 what kind of changes are you to make? And I said, well, honestly, like anything would have been a great than like me writing Sharpies on the back of an old, like printout of something. But like, if you're going to do this, like you need to do things like you need to make the words bigger because if you've got, if your hands have tremors, like mine did, you, you couldn't press on like, like the board needs to be like five times the size, you know, because did you see the Vita, Vita talk software? So I didn't. I didn't get to try anything like that. Honestly, like I know there's technology that lets you, it's called an iWriter technology. They use it for, for paralyzed. My daughter has it. Patients. Really? Oh, wow. So I was like, well, if you know that COVID patients can't talk, why wouldn't you provide something like this? Like, I think this because is- everyone that's on a ventilator sedated. So there's no need for communication because they're yeah. not human anymore, I guess. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of thing where it's like, it's like at this point, we all have like phones with facial recognition. Like, I don't know that it would be terribly difficult for someone in the medical community. Well, let's make, let's do this right now. Let's just file a patent, but like software that lets your phone read your eyes and tells you what you're, you know. And if every patient's room has an iPad now. Yep. 
Well, yeah. and there's and now there's special apps. So I've been um, exploring a lot with Vita Talk, and they've created software and iPads, special devices and boards for those scenarios so that you don't have these tiny little icons and try to navigate when you're shaky and weak. And so, oh yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't log into anything when they first gave me the iPad because my hands were shaking so much. And in fact, I was looking up the iWriter technology because I'd actually met the founder of the company that does it. And, and it took me two days to type in that URL. So, but that's why, yeah, this is the creator of Vita Talkum. He's, he's an anesthesiologist working critical care as a tech for years, mm-hmm. but he understands the real bedside application of it in these kind of situations. Because, I mean, how much sedation would you have been spared if you you could have communicated? I have a hashtag hashtag communicate not sedate. Right. And how much of the sequilla? How many of the, this whole domino effect would have been spared had they had we communicated? before intubation yeah, and transparent with the risks and the options communicated with you, with you after intubation, worked you through, talked you through what the ventilator does, where you're at. And you could have been spared delirium agitation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then talked with Sunny the whole time, all that communication. And, and maybe you wouldn't have gotten so weak and shaky. You could have used your own cell phone the whole time. Which yeah. is they see in the COVID ICU, they wake and walk in ICU. People use their own cell phones because they don't lose well, 50 pounds. Yeah, well, it's true. And honestly, like if I look at, at the things that I had to recover from post ICU, obviously lung capacity is a huge issue and remained a, a big issue. And that was a huge deal. But the biggest issue for me was the muscle loss of muscle mass. You had to learn how to walk again. Yeah. I lost my, I lost my balance because I hadn't been able to, you know, move. And so I remember the very first time I like did like a real walk down in the the halls of the rehab facility. I, you know, I looked into one of the open rooms thinking it might be my, my bedroom because they were coming back to my room and just that act of turning like made me totally lose my balance. I started to tip over and my therapist is probably weighed like half as much as me. And she grabs my belt and like, and it was like, I was like falling in slow motion, you know, towards, mm-hmm. towards the wall, just kind of like, ah, timber, like five, 200 pounds. Yeah, no. So it's like, so it was, it was really learning all of these things again. And I'm a writer. So, so the hand thing was really terrifying, you know, and, but the, but the really cool thing, I think what I was really happy about is that I was able to use my writing as, as occupational therapy to essentially become back. So I had Sunny bring in an ergonomic keyboard versus my laptop, which I would totally recommend if anyone's trying to like do this, because what it does is it locks your fingers into place in a way that a flat keyboard doesn't. And I was able to type and for, for quite a while, typing was the only way I could communicate. Wow. And how long did it take for you to be able to walk? So from the time you came out of sedation, realized you had a trach to the time that you were able to walk, even if it was a stagger. That's hard. Cause that there was that, that weird, like four, four to five days of kind of semi sedation. Like he, yeah. Probably. From once you were awake, maybe four days till you four. took your first step. No, it wasn't that it was longer. I, it was probably like fully awake though. 
Oh yeah, maybe five days. Like you were. It took a yeah, long time. Yeah. It took a long time. And granted, you were a mountain biker before, and and most patients, especially when they're not in such good health before, take weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember the very first day that I was fully awake, I had all these plans. I was sort of like, I wanted to talk to Sunny twice on Zoom. I wanted Mm -hmm. to like do these things, and the and they said we're going to bring PT in, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk, and like I'm kind of a person who I will, you know, we always talk about like we. Sonny and I both talk about winning PT whenever we do it. There's like little old people next to us. And we're like, all right, we can do this. We can do better. You walk than- faster than that guy. Yeah. And- <laughs> what have you been allowed to use that personality trait and that gumption? Yeah, absolutely. While you right away, right after. So I thought I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this. And the PT rolls me out of bed. And I don't know if you remember these toys from when we were younger. No, there's a little like, little like kind of statues of, I remember of like Goofy, you know, and they had little rubber strings attached to them and they would stand up straight until you like put the bottom and then they just collapse. Yes. That's what it was like. I sat up and I had no core strength left. My core was completely gone. No, any kind of strength. And I just collapsed. And because of that, you Your know, lungs got my lungs got too. crushed and my diaphragm got crushed. I couldn't breathe. My oxygen dropped and I couldn't, it was all I could do to sit up in the edge of bed. And I leaned back and, you know, and I just remember being so discouraged because I just had nothing, nothing to, to sort of, I couldn't control anything. You know, I couldn't even sit up. And, you know, and that was, you know, in retrospect, completely unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Likely not. I mean, it's hard when someone has a problem with oxygen consumption, but I really feel like in general ventilator dyssynchrony and lung function is improved when patients are not delirious, agitated, thrashing. So who knows how long you could have, if you would have maybe needed to be paralyzed for a brief period, nonetheless, not the full three weeks. Yeah. And the full three weeks of not moving a muscle, then your diaphragm atrophy and the starvation and the starvation. You talked about seeing your legs, legs for the first time. So you, first of all, on the high flow for those few days, you had a feeding tube, but you weren't being fed. Mm-hmm. Correct. And then you had a, your bowels weren't working. So you took a, a couple of days off of being fed. In addition, we learned in um, previous episodes that a lot of COVID-19 patients go into a state of hypermetabolism. So you were immobile, hypermetabolism, underfed. And so you lost a lot of weight. You said you lost 50 pounds, but how much was that was fat versus lean muscle? It's a great question. I actually did lose a lot of muscle and I was a cyclist and so had really strong legs and I woke up and I looked down and they looked from the top more or less the same. Like they just seemed like they had shrunken and I didn't shock shocked me a lot. But then when I finally kind of had my legs out of the boots, they keep you, put you in to keep you from getting blood clots. I got a chance to look at my calves and it wasn't just that they had shrunk. It was, a, there was nothing there. There were no muscle there. And I had awesome calves. Like that's the one <laughs> thing. A biker. In, that's the one thing in life that I'm proud of. Like everything else I got like dad bought and stuff like that, but the legs are in good shape. <laughs> Empty sacks of skin. It, it was as yeah. if someone had sucked the muscle out with a straw. That's what it, that's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. 
And, you know, and that's something that was such a part of my identity. It was really uh, painful. I would say that was probably the thing that I struggled with the most was just that sort of like feeling like I just wasn't the person that I had been when I went in. On the bonus side, though, you looked 20 years younger. <laughs> I did. Whole face, just because I lost muscle but not fat. I had so like baby fat. I looked like I was when I came out of high school. So, <laughs> so that was but cool. You would have been willing to trade that for. I, yeah, I know. I was good. Yeah. Great. Well, even when people are waking walking the ventilator, they're not you know going to go mountain biking the next day. It's yeah, a yeah, process. Exactly. But even just being able to, if you never, when these patients don't stop getting out of bed. They don't lose the ability to get out of bed. And, and you're just such a powerful demonstration of all these statistics that we read as far as I see acquired weakness, PTSD. I mean, Sunny clearly has PTSD. Do you feel like you've been traumatized by your journey? I will just talk quickly, but, you know, I think there are certain triggers that I have things around like my tracheostomy scar like that still, I can't really look at it without it causing it, it adhered to my trachea so that when I he had to have a revision surgery last week and he was terrified of getting put under again. Yeah. And obviously. so, so I have a lot of triggers around that. Sedation um, was what terrified you most of all. Yeah. They were like, do you want to, do you want to be fully under, do you want twilight? And I was like, I would want to be awake. Like, I don't want that. You know, I don't want to be under at all. And they did talk me into at least like falling asleep, but right. like I sitting there in my hospital gown again, looking at it's just, it was at the same medical center yeah. and I was looking down at the exact same pattern that I had been looking at for four weeks. And I just, thought, I can't be here. And you weren't um, sure if you're going to wake up in a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least like logically I knew I would be okay, but tell that to the part of your brain that doesn't listen to those kinds of things. And I think with tracheostomies, I mean, from the ICU side, we get tracheal pigs and them out. We don't know what it's like to have that scar. Yeah. 25% of survivors uh, from tracheostomies have subglottic stenosis. So I see you swallowing different. Yeah. Even watching them over zoom. I can see you're yeah. affected by that tracheostomy. You've had to have a revision who knows what is down the road. Well, I'll see the revision didn't, the revision didn't take like, at least as far as I know so far, it's, it seems to be exactly the same as it was before, which is that, I mean, the, the scar looks better. It doesn't look like a belly button anymore, but like it, it, it's still stuck. It still is attached to my to, to my trachea so that when you swallow the whole thing moves and in a like a business world where i'm on zoom 100 of the time i have to wear buttoned up shirts just because i don't want to look at it i'm sure no one else wants to look at it so every single time i see my my scar it's a reminder what happened but that said i got like as i said before i got lucky in the sense that like the one advantage of being asleep during that whole time or out the whole time is that I didn't have to deal with that. But Sunny, unfortunately, had to. Yeah. I think you are fortunate. A lot of survivors, if you go on any survivor page, you're going to hear them talk about the kind of delusions that you had, but that were constant for those three weeks straight. That you oh, wow. So you are fortunate to have had a period of you know blackout, even if you did yeah. come out delirious. Um, yeah. You just reinforce a lot of the statistics as far as increased time on the ventilator, increased rates of tracheostomy, increased risk of readmission to the ICU. You got that. So when mm -hmm. we're in this period of crisis, we have overload of patients, staffing crisis, we're implementing these practices that keep people in those beds, using those equipment and the staff longer. It takes more staff to get 
a six foot five, 200 pound guy that's extremely weak and at a high risk of falling out of bed. It's yeah. much less dangerous and takes less staff when we do it right away. Yeah. Um, it took, I want to say five people to flip him every time they needed to prone him. Yes. Which we have, we've had patients turn themselves into prone. I mean, if yeah. you've not been so sedated before that, so weak or even sedated at the time, maybe you could have helped prone your yeah, six foot five, 250 pound body. So I think your experience reinforces a lot of the, the theme of the, the podcast that when we humanize the ICU and allow patients to stay human, mm-hmm. the process is easier for everyone involved. It's more fulfilling for the staff to connect and get to know you as Jeff Sweat, for Sunny to have her rock still present throughout it all. And I'm so glad that you've made it out on the other side, that you're able to still be yourself. You know, you're, it sounds like you're back to work and functioning, which is not often the case for survivors that have been sedated for that long. So congratulations. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Please join our Facebook group so that you can continue to teach the ICU side about your side of the journey, because that's a side that we hardly ever hear about. Anything else you would add to the discussion, leave with the ICU community? No, I would just say, I think it's really good to be aware of what your options are and, and keep the family as much in the loop as possible. The, the whole post ICU syndrome thing is very real, but a nurse friend of ours pointed out that I likely had the post ICU syndrome family version. And I, when I looked it up and there was a chart and I played post ICU family bingo and I got bingo. Like it's, I'm like, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. But I think, you know, you mentioned sort of all these things that people typically go through. It's hard to say with a straight face that I got lucky by the way that this happened, but the reality is I did, you know, like it could have been so much worse and I could still be dealing with these things and, you know, or you couldn't have to come home. Yeah, I could have been home, mm-hmm. but but to be in the position right now where I am, where I have healed, I do feel incredibly fortunate. And thank you for being an advocate for change. Hopefully, in a few years, we'll look back at your experience and see it as a time, a thing of the past. Yes, that patients will and families will have more autonomy, involvement, choices, and education as far as their treatments and outcomes. And I think one of the main, the main ways to get over trauma and grief is to find meaning. And that's one thing we are hoping to do is to have people learn from this. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the one thing I should probably mention before we close is like, people always ask like, what changed? And one thing that we we've decided to do is to write about this. And I'm a writer, but we didn't know or Sunny wasn't willing to admit until this all happened is that Sunny is a pretty great writer too. And, and when I got sick, Sunny started maintaining these updates and we kind of just set the, the, all of our posts to public and what started happening was everybody kept on sharing these. And by the end, we had literally thousands of people following this story and which is worldwide which is how we ultimately got connected is someone who we didn't know following this, who decided to tell you about it. And it was amazing. It was sort of such a, such an amazing outpouring of concern for all of this and community community. or just community. And that's what, you know, I think having Sunny in my corner, knowing that she was there fighting for me. And then having the world in my corner. Yeah. 
that's what made it possible for me to recover. I really do think so. I, I feel like, you know, the, the metaphor I have is like at any point throughout this, you know, I was at pretty even odds of survival. It could go one way or the other. And I felt like having that support, having feeling that love really is what put kind of the finger on the scale in the other direction. And if it weren't for that, I don't know that I'd be here. No, family is, is medicine. And that's the, one of the main keys to survival. Yeah. And so what, and we are actually writing a book about that and hopefully it won't be out by the time people hear this, but by this time next year, hopefully there'll be something they'll be able to read about this story. Okay. And I will put the link to your website on the blog associated with this, as well as any pictures and videos you want to share. Your story is moving and your family's beautiful. I'm so glad you guys are together again. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.